church. It's good to be with you guys. You may have noticed uh, there's something new that I'm standing behind. We have this brand new pulpit podium that, uh, see, Ben had the wood and cut it, and Will put it together. So now I really feel like I can preach, right? <laughs> I don't have a music stand, so I can't, I don't have a little fidget knob I can play with. This thing is fixed. Uh, hopefully it's not going to slide down as we, as we put it behind the stage and create any distractions. Uh, so thank you, Will and, and Ben, for this. Um, also, let me remind you that right after our gathering, we were celebrating uh, the graduation of Miranda from Lighthouse Family Ministries. So uh, Nathan's going to go pick up some pizza. We've got salads and fruits and whatever else. Uh, Megan always has a good job with the food. Um, and we've got cake, so it'll be a great time. Uh, please hang out afterwards. Um, we're going to try to tear down our stuff uh, afterwards while we're eating and just use a couple of mics from the gathering place uh, for the celebration. So. Uh, just please keep that in mind as we start. But uh, let me now, let's now turn to 1 Samuel. Uh, so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to take hold of that and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. We're continuing a study through the book of 1 Samuel. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we've got some provided here on the room off to my left. We'd love to give you one. Uh, we believe the Bible is a great gift and grace from God to know Him, uh, to love Him, to be taught by Him. Uh, we are a church who, whose lives have been changed by Jesus. And as he's been changed, he's changed us, he's radically transformed our life. By his word, we want to continually give ourselves to the hearing of God's word, to trusting in it, to obeying it. So uh, we trust that, that the Bible is God's word, and we eagerly await each week to hear from God, to be taught by him, and to be shaped for his glory and for our joy. So uh, let's, let's turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, my goal this morning is to teach this text in a way that you see God's character revealed. Uh, there's three questions that we've been seeking to answer each week as we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel. Those are kind of geared at helping us to understand, and like they've been used as a tool, hopefully, to equip you as a student of God's word. What does this passage teach us about God and his character? How does this story connect to the larger story of the Bible? And what is this passage calling us to do or not to do? So those kind of shape and serve a framework for the sermon. And before we do that, we're just going to walk through the passage in kind of a verse-by-verse -verse manner, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 25, and then seek to answer those questions. You guys with me? Yep. Cool. So I don't think we want to seek like more information and knowledge. Sorry, I keep turning your attention to the Bible and then calling you back. Uh, I don't think you want to seek to master the scriptures and just build up more knowledge, right? My goal is we want to be mastered by God. We want to be gripped by his grace, right? And hopefully that's our posture and our mindset this morning is we're not here to build up more information. Uh, many of you probably could teach me a lot about theology and memorize more scripture than I have. The goal is let's be mastered by God, let's see his grace, and let's respond in worship and obedience. All right? So 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and made a king over you. This is coming right after 1 Samuel chapter 11, where Samuel, uh, the people have called for a king. There's this guy named Nahash who was attacking the Israelite town of Jabesh Gilead. Uh, they, they call out and ask for a deliverer. Saul is this man who has been appointed and, and chosen by God to be the king. He comes and rallies the troops with an army. He does this weird thing. He, he kills a couple pairs of oxen, cuts them up into 12 pieces, and sends them throughout the land. This rallies the troops. They go to war. They do a sneak attack. 
in the, in the early morning between midnight and 6 a.m., and they rout the enemy, and then they had the celebration afterwards where they're responding to God and by what he's done with, with peace offerings, and they're responding with thanksgiving. Saul is then made king, and this speech seems to be in that kind of at Gilgal. It seems to be right after what we just have kind of covered in 1 Samuel chapter 11, and Samuel's going to give this speech, or it, it might be considered like more of a sermon, where he's going to remind the people about what God has done. He's going to offer some warnings and then call them to action. He says, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and made a king over you. And this is a reference to the request that the people of Israel had made in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, where they say, the people say to Samuel, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, uh, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And Samuel is upset by this, but God says, Obey their voice, give them a king. And this is where we've come now. Saul has been made king. Uh, this, this process has happened, and now Saul is going to give a speech and a sermon to the people. It says again, and now, verse 2, Now, behold, the king walks before you. This is signifying that transition that's happened. Samuel's no longer kind of the ruling judge or authority. It's now been transitioned to Saul, although we're not going to see Samuel like leave after this. He still has a very important role in kind of serving more of as a prophet and speaking to the kings on God's behalf. Uh, Samuel is going to anoint the next king of Israel, as we'll see soon. Uh, but this, this is referencing the transition here in verse 2. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. That's a reference to Saul, the king. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. Now, for us, as we read this in our culture, uh, the question of whose donkey or whose ox have I taken is a little peculiar. Um, but in, in that culture, in, the, in this time, uh, ox and donkeys were very valuable possessions. Uh, so that, was, that would have been a big deal that, that Samuel is, is talking about his character and his integrity, that he hasn't taken that. Furthermore, it seems to be a contrast to what Samuel warned the people that a king would do. Uh, he says, back in chapter 8, verses 11 through 17, he lists out the series of warnings. That this is, if this is what you're asking people of Israel for a king, this is what will happen. And one of the things that he says is that a king would take the best of their donkeys and put them to his work. And he continues... Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And right out of the gate, these first five verses, Samuel's kind of uh, securing a kind of vindication, proof that his leadership, his judgeship has been right. He's led with integrity. He's been a person of faithfulness. And he's going to be a clear contrast to the, the worthless and wicked priests that we've mentioned previously who are described as perverting justice, using their positions of authority to take from people and abuse their position for personal gain. He's not like that. And Samuel also seems to be indicating here and implying that this kind of character and faithfulness should characterize the king. This kind of faithfulness to God, this integrity, this kind of leadership should be the kind of leadership that, and the kind of man that Saul chooses to be and, and wants to pursue. And all the people of Israel recognize this. 
And you can imagine, Samuel's, in a sense, getting up and saying, uh, if I've offended anyone, done any wrong, now's your chance. Come talk to me, I'm going to make it right. And the people have nothing against him. Right? Like, what a man of faithfulness and integrity. Like, I hope to have that kind of reputation and, and, and character. That, and, and shouldn't we have the same kind of desire, right? Someone, who am I defrauded? Whom have I hurt? Whom have I oppressed? Whom have I wronged? Whom have I taken from? And people can say of us, uh, you have been a person of integrity and character. This is the kind of man that Samuel is. Samuel says, from my youth, I have walked in faithfulness. And you are a witness of this. And you're agreeing to this. And you may need to remember this when future kings don't demonstrate the same level of integrity and character that I have. And you still ask for a king. Samuel continues in verse 6. The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Samuel saying, stand here quietly. Present yourself as a form of service and submission. I'm going to remind you of all the great things that God has done. As mentioned previously, he's now kind of getting into the, the reminding of what God has done in the sermon or in the speech. He's making an appeal to the people, reminding them based on God's previous acts and all that he's done for his people to live in light of that, to not forsake him, to surrender to him, to obey him. So let's see where he starts in his reminding of the people in, in chapter 8. It says, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Verse nine, but they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab and they fought against him. And they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and Ashtaroth. Now deliver us from the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal, which is a name for Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Now, I don't think particularly that Samuel's throwing his name in the mix here to say, I'm one of the greats. I don't think he's doing this in a sense of highlighting his own kind of greatness and how God has used him, and this is kind of a, him boasting in himself. I think what Samuel's doing here is, is because he's throwing his name in there, He's essentially telling the people, not only in the past, over the years, from Egypt to the period of the judges, but even now, God has continually been faithful to you. He has not forsaken you. He has been leading you and been rescuing you. Like, even now, this is not, there's not a kind of gap where God hasn't been there for you or, or saved you. He's always been there with you, even now. But verse 12, when you saw that Nahash the king of the Ammonites came against you. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the command of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you 
and your king. And Samuel's highlighting two things here. Number one, he's saying that recently something shifted, something changed. Like even though all the way up to this point, as you've had oppressors and enemies come against you, you've called out to God and he's raised up a deliverer for you. But something changed with Nahash. Now, for whatever reason, you said, we want a king. A king shall reign over us. They are essentially rejecting God's kingship and asking, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a human king who will walk up before us just so we can be like everyone else and the king will fight our battles. And, and Samuel's reminding them, this is, this is not good. You rejected God as king when, when he was the one who's always been providing for you and ruling over you. And notice too what Samuel's doing secondly. He's saying, even though you have rejected God as king, and even though you want to be like the other nations and have a king rule over you, God's still the boss. God is still the one who is in charge and the one who ultimately the people and the king will be responsible towards. So in a sense, the people have said, God, forget you. We want to reject you and your kingship. God's saying, no, you can have a king, but I'm still king. Does that make sense? Both of the king and the people are still going to be held responsible and held accountable to obeying me and living in line of my word and my will. And he says that they need to do three things. Number one, fear the Lord. Two, serve him. And three, obey his voice. To fear him means a sort of submissive awe. We've talked about this before. Fear the Lord is submissive awe. It entails a posture and an attitude of reverence towards God. It means giving him the honor and respect that is due. To serve him in the sense is essentially another way of saying worship him, uh, be his servant. And three, obey his voice means to heed, to listen, to pay close attention to and respond in conformity. And Samuel is, is in a sense, kind of reminding them of the covenant that, that they made, that, that Moses kind of enacted after God had saved them from the Egyptians. Uh, he's reminding them of their responsibility to God as their Lord and as their master and as their savior. So in the midst of the people rejecting God as king, God does not reject his people. He doesn't leave his people. He's instead reminding them and providing provisions for how kingship shall succeed. It's really kind of a peculiar thing that even though the people reject God as king, God is telling them how kingship can succeed if they obey him. That's kind of fascinating to me. He says what he repeated earlier uh, in verse 16, continuing on, now therefore stand still. And see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. And if you hadn't read through this story before, you might be thinking something really great and wonderful and, uh, and happy is going to happen. It seems to be an act of judgment that follows next. Verse 17, is it not wheat harvest today? The time of wheat harvest would have been the dry season in Israel. It would have been uh, probably around May or June. And, and the dry season in Israel was anywhere from October, uh, April to October. So there wouldn't have been a chance of rain during this time. It says, is this not wheat harvest? I will call upon the Lord and he will send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourself a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now for us, this is maybe a harder concept for us to understand because it seems like at any moment, even in the summer, it will rain, right? <laughs> but this would have been a miracle and a clear sign in the midst of a dry season that because of this thunder and rain, this is the clear demonstration of God's judgment, 
a demonstration that what they did in asking for a king was wicked. And, and Samuel is telling them, this, this is how uh, you will know what your wickedness is by seeing this miracle in the dry season. It says, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And this seems to be that people have now, they've kind of been inspired. I mean, you can imagine. I don't know exactly what this was like, not living in a climate with a dry season, but seeing this, this miracle, this clear sign of God's power uh, over uh, nature and the creation. Um, as I was studying this week, many people believe that those gods that were mentioned earlier, Baal, was the, he's kind of a chief Canaanite god which would have been the surrounding gods around Israel, the, the god that the Israelites are described to as forgetting the god and, and worshiping Baal. Baal was the chief god of thunder and rain. So God is, in a sense, kind of showing his superiority and a, a demonstration of his power that even though you forsake me and you worship these other false things, uh, see how great I am. See my power. See your wickedness. And the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They recognize their guilt, they're responding in confession, and yet, here's what Samuel says in verse 20, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. We'll come back to this idea of how are we supposed to fear the Lord and then not be afraid? We'll look at that in a minute. It says, and do not turn after empty things. That, that phrase can be translated worthless idols, useless idols that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Interesting enough, that word empty things is the same word in Hebrew that's translated uh, without form and void in Genesis 1-2, or that can mean uh, formless. So idolatry, in a sense, is almost a kind of decreation uh, and forgetting God as king. Verse 21, do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And then let's, we're going to stop here for a while in verse 22. I want you to highlight, underline, circle, make a note, uh, seek to like let this verse sink in. This, this is like, to me, as I was reading this, I couldn't get past this verse. This for me is like the juicy steak that we can chew on and uh, saturate ourselves in and just enjoy it. And if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, I'm, I'm sorry, maybe it's like that. Nice, juicy black bean burger. Uh, for the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. This is a rich verse, guys. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. How can the Israelites have hope amidst their rebellion and seeing how they have rejected God as king? They have added to all of their sins. What hope do the Israelites have? What comfort do they have? Not in their, how well they've done. Because clearly they've, they've screwed up and they failed again and again and again. Moses is, or excuse me, Samuel is reminding them the hope and the comfort that they have is in God's faithfulness to the covenant, God's own desire for the demonstration and the preservation of his glory, God's word to himself that he will make a people that are pleasing to him. Even though the people had forsaken God, he will not forsake his people. 
the reason for this election, this mercy, this grace, this discipline, this continual deliverance and faithfulness is for his great name's sake. Now, this does not mean that God thinks he has a great name in the sense of, uh, like, God is a really cool name. This is, this is not like me going around and saying, hey, do you know what my name is? It's Daniel. That's a great name. My parents picked out one of the best names, and I have it. That's not what name means, and, and many of you know this, and uh, forgive me for the poor joke. But name in this sense is a reference to character and authority. Like, right, when Diana Ross and the Supremes sing the song, Stop in the Name of Love, they're saying, right, in the, the authority, or in accordance to love, stop. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying on the authority of Jesus. Like, we have access to God and privilege and identity and status to come to God freely as his children because of Jesus and what he's done. That's what this, this idea of the name means. So when Samuel says God will not forsake his people for his great namesake, he's saying that God is great and magnificent and supreme and glorious and for his own fame, his renown, his reputation, his character, who he is, he will not forsake his people. And Samuel says in verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. And friends, let me, let me pause here for a moment and say that, that I and the team of elders that I'm a part of, uh, the leadership of this church, desire this kind of uh, promise, our call, our obligation, our responsibility towards you, that we want to love you and serve you and pray for you. We want to teach you in the good and, and the right way, instruct you in the way of God and, and his word. We pray for you. I don't say that, again, to kind of boast about how great or good we are, but to, to show you and that we really care about you. And, and this is a tangible way that, that I think, in agreement with Samuel, uh, it is a great privilege to love you and serve you as your leaders, and we pray for you. So, for example, in the, beginning, in the, in the, uh, let's see, in the cover page of my Bible, I have a list of names from people who regularly gather with the church, and I pray for you guys, for your kids, for your families. I think it's a great privilege that I have as one of your leaders to pray for you. So I say that as a sense of uh, we love you. Uh, we want to serve you and pray for you and teach you. And, and I pray that our hearts and that there will be an agreement from you guys that, that this is our desire and our heart and that you could say that of us, uh, that we want to teach you and instruct you in the good and right way. So, Amen. Samuel continues his speech by giving a final encouragement to obey. He says in verse 24, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So this, this speech kind of brings to conclusion uh, what we've seen starting in chapter 8 all the way until now, and this is kind of marking the end of Saul being made king. So after this point, Right into now, we get into Samuel chapter 13. It describes Saul as being king. And here kind of launches into the monarchy of Israel having human kings. Uh, but it, we're not going to get there this week. We're, we're, we're going to 1 Samuel chapter 13 next week. Let's pause here and, and take a moment to consider answering those three questions that, that you'll see up on your screen, that you'll find in your handout on your way in this morning. Uh, 
after we've kind of provided some commentary and some context into what's going down in the story, let's seek to make sense and draw some meaning of what God might teach us in this story. So number one, what does the story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? We want to look at that aspect of God's character that's highlighted. And I think this passage teaches us a lot about God and his character, doesn't it? We see uh, that, that God is, is faithful, that even in the midst of the Israelites' unfaithfulness, and there's a pattern that's repeated. God saves his people, they forget him, they rebel. God saves his people, they forget him, they rebel, uh, they're oppressed. God saves his people, and this, this pattern is continued. We saw it all the way through Judges. Uh, Samuel hints at that at the beginning here of chapter 12. There's a pattern, but in the midst of the unfaithfulness, God is faithful to a faithless people. We see that aspect of God's character highlighted and how he relates to his people. We see the justice of God, that God wants to see and know uh, and for the people to experience their own sin and their wickedness and confess their sins to God. We see this in the miraculous sign of God sending thunder and rain. We see God's kind of desire to comfort and to encourage his people to not be afraid because he is committed to them. But I think all of these truths are centered and built on the reality that we see in verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make a people for himself. Right? It's not as if the Israelites are a pleasing people, that God saves them. It's not because they have performed in a pleasant way. They have been rebellious, and yet God will not forsake his people because of his commitment to his great name. And this is, this is a truth that I think needs to be at the foundation of our faith and the bedrock of our belief that God is ultimately concerned about the preservation and display of his glory. God is committed to ransoming and rescuing and redeeming and forming and purifying and disciplining and caring and comforting a people who are his, who bring him glory. The Lord will not forsake his people because it is God's pleasure to make a people for himself for his great namesake. And that might seem like, whoa, uh, God is super egocentric. Right, this is what has led like, people like Oprah Winfrey to reject the, the, the God of Christianity because he seems so self-centered and, and just pleading with people, worship me, serve me. And she has nothing to do with that. But who else would God make much of? And, and what else then, if we're being honest, would really bring the comfort of trying to put our, our own God's accepting and loving and commitment to us based on ourself? Wouldn't that lead to great despair or pride that we think, oh, it's because of us. God stays faithful to me because I'm faithful to him. God's all about me because I'm all about me, Right? Friends, this might seemingly be very offensive. I remember when I started getting introduced to this idea and seeing it in the scriptures that God is about the display of his glory, I really hated it, if I'm going to be honest. Pfft, what? I thought, I thought everything was about me. <laughs> right? And isn't that just everything in our life is, reinforces that truth? Yet, friends, when we, when we start to see that, that God is ultimately about the display of his glory because that is what brings the, the most flourishing and joy of his creation and his people, that's how it's designed. It's not, a very, it's not like a prideful and an egocentric thing for God to say, worship me. It's a loving thing for us to, to give him the glory that's deserved and, and honored. 
when we see that when it's not about us and our greatness and our ability to live up to his law and be faithful to, to how he has asked us, it's about his faithfulness to his own glory, that brings great comfort and peace in the midst of our sin and our rebellion and our rejection. And that's what it's done for me. The more I, the more I chew on this, the sweeter it becomes. It's like that, that sour candy, that hard, those hard balls that you might win, uh, like at an arcade or... You know, you put the quarter in and you twist it, and who knows how long the candy's been in there, you know? And, <laughs> but you don't think about that as a kid, right? You're just like, ooh, candy. And, Dad, can I have a quarter? And first, it might be sour, but the more you suck on it and, and the more it kind of saturates and sits there in your mouth, it becomes sweeter. And this is what I think this doctrine does in the, in the life of our faith and in our maturity. It becomes a sweet thing to trust and to cherish that God is ultimately about his glory and his honor, and he will not forsake me because of his glory. Let's look at maybe how this truth, that God is utterly and totally committed to his glory, its preservation, its display, is seen throughout the grand narrative of the Bible. And I want to highlight a story to which I think this story points back to, and how we ultimately see this story points forward to Christ. So uh, did you notice throughout the story the repetition of that phrase uh, in verse... Seven. Now, therefore, stand still. He says that uh, first there. And then he says again in verse 16, Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing. And many commentaries, and, and as I was studying this passage, they think that that's a kind of direct correlation and connection to what Moses tells the people of Israel as God is about to free them uh, from Egyptian kind of pursuit after Pharaoh says, you know, fine, you guys go ahead, worship your God in the wilderness. He changes his mind. He goes after them and pursues them with chariots. The people of Israel are like, What's going to happen? We're just going to get slaughtered by these chariots. Uh, and God parts the Red Sea, and the people walk through on dry land, and then God closes it on the Egyptians and saves them. This is the same uh, phrase that, that Moses uses to the people. He says in Exodus chapter 14, 13, Moses says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. This is the two same imperatives. Stand still, stand firm, and see. It says, For today the Lord will work salvation for you. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. God says, continuing in verse 15, Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land, and I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host, his chariot and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You see the connection there? Stand still and see. God's glory will be displayed. And that's what he's about. Right? The connection there. God is about the display and the preservation of his glory for his great namesake. So that's how it connects, I think, back to Moses and that act of watch and see what God will do, see his glory. But ultimately, it points forward to what we see ultimately in Jesus coming as the glory of God and vindicating his people for his great namesake and Jesus' glory being shown fully on the cross. Of, on the cross. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer and the act of grace, the salvation, the redemption of God to work on behalf of his people. Because Jesus was sent to free God's people from, not from military rulers like Sisera or from a king of Moab, the king of Hazor, 
Jesus was sent not to just save his people from this guy named Nahash, this Ammonite who was attacking the Israelites and possibly leading them to oppression. Jesus was sent to deliver his people from the greatest enemy, the greatest oppression, the greatest slavery, captivity forever from darkness and from sin and from Satan. Jesus came, the glory of God, for God's purposes to make a people for himself. Jesus came taking the weight of their sin, their punishment that God's people deserved on himself. And although God's people are faithless and rebellious, Jesus himself was treated as a faithless rebel. Jesus got what God's people deserved. He's treated like a rebel and he ultimately suffers a horrible, horrific death on the cross. Jesus takes and removes the guilt and shame, the wrath that we deserve for our rebellion. And he simultaneously gives us his perfection, his purity, his righteousness, his goodness to us. For the Israelites, Jesus, for the Israelites, the people saw God's uh, display and, and saw their wickedness clearly in God sending thunder and rain. God's ultimate display of how wicked the people are is seen in his coming to the cross. Right, so we read the story and we see that the Israelites, uh, they were led to confession and repentance by seeing their great wickedness in this great sign. And we are continually reminded of this as we come to the cross. The cross is the sign of how great our wickedness and our rebellion is. The cross is where Jesus took the wrath that we deserved upon himself. And he is punished so that we can be acquitted. In this story, we see that Samuel is an intercessor who prays on behalf of the Israelites, that they may not die. And for the Christian, this ultimately points to Jesus being our greatest intercessor, who prays for us and came that we might live forever, that we may not die. We see the character of God revealed that, that he is about the display of his glory and making a people for himself. He's ultimately committed to that, that he is faithful in the midst of a faithless people that Jesus came to make this a reality. Let's maybe look at that question three on what does this passage call us to do or not to do. And and I want to end similar to how Samuel ends the speech. I think, honestly, probably in this chapter, I could have just read it and sat down and said, all right, let's listen and worship. And maybe some of you would have appreciated that more uh, so you didn't have to hear me for 30 minutes. But this is such a clear example, I think, of, of what should entail in a sermon. There is a reminder of what God has done. There is a warning on rebellion, and there is an invitation to trust and obey, to consider what he has done. And as we think about what this passage calls us to do, I want to take those words of encouragement and warning that Samuel says and and apply them. So I think this story calls us, number one, don't forget what God has done. Rather, consider what great things he has done for you. Number two, don't turn aside and go after empty things. Rather, serve him faithfully. Worship him alone and obey his voice. And if you want to try to break that down in a simple two words, I would say consider and conform. Consider and conform. I think the problem that Samuel addresses in the story is that the Israelites are a forgetful people. They forget God. So it says in verse 9, even though that when Jacob went into Egypt, the, Isra- the Egyptians oppressed them, the people cried out to God, the Lord sent Moses and Aaron. God brought them out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Verse 9, they forgot the Lord their God. This is a problem that we see throughout the, the Old Testament story, Deuteronomy 4.9. And it's a, it's a problem that's warned of again and again. Deuteronomy 4.9 says, Only heed to yourself and keep your soul dil- diligently, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and do not depart from 
your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. So there's a warning. Don't, don't forget. Deuteronomy 4.23. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against the Lord your God has commanded you. This is a problem that we see during the time of the judges for the people of Israel. Judges 3.7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Judges 8.33, then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot and made Baal Bareth their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side. And I think if we're honest, this is a problem that did not end in the life of the Israelites. This problem of forgetfulness and not remembering what God has done, that friends, I think we are prone to the same thing as Christians. Although a Christian is one who believes that Jesus of Nazareth saved them from wrath and from hate, God's hatred of sin, he saved them from their wickedness. They've been redeemed and he's given them new status and privilege and purpose and life. They believe that God has done great things for them. A Christian can very easily functionally operate and practically live uh, as if they've done great things for themselves or God has not done great things for them. They're marked by a sense of pride and self-righteousness. They, they functionally live as if they are superior and, and show it in their smugness, in their distance, in their lack of kindness and grace for others. Or they live in a sense of continual despair that God can never love someone like them, could never accept someone like them, and, and they're just continually crushed by the weight of their sin. Functionally and practically, I think, as Christians, we can do this by forgetting God's, what he has done for us, forgetting the gospel, that our identity, our acceptance, our status, our approval is rooted in what Jesus has done and what he has done for us. It's not determined based on, on how great we are or the fact that we may or may not be accepted by social groups or our family or our friends or, or we're never really like deserving or we're overwhelmed by feelings of rejection and judgment and unmet expectations. This is how we, I think, functionally live out of this forgetfulness. You guys with me on this? Let me show you what it can practically look like in my life by public confession. Uh, this week, Steph and I had a miscommunication, something that, that I feel like I'm trying to work on and grow. Uh, I have deep friends who are helping me do this, learn how to better communicate with my wife. I'm just terrible at it. Uh, and, and this week, I failed. I, there was a miscommunication. And, and that became obvious, and a conflict arose. And I realized, oh, crap, I I misunderstood, or I didn't communicate clearly. And instead of telling Stephanie, hey, I'm sorry, uh, I'm, I misspoke, or I misheard you, or I said something I shouldn't have, I lied. I tried to uh, persuade her that, that we didn't miscommunicate. And what I was doing in that moment, I think subconsciously or unconsciously, or whatever kind of sits below that, maybe I was intentionally, is my image and, and my reputation and my, uh, my performance, my, my need to be kind of respected or approved of. I, I, value, I was believing in that, that, that it was based on being a person who never communicates, being a person who's always super clear and understands people perfectly. It wasn't based on that. It was 
and, and that led to great, that led to a problem. Now that might be like, well, Daniel, you're just way overanalyzing that. That was just a simple miscommunication. But I think kind of underneath where we might actively think, this is what is going on. We're functionally forgetting. We are seeking to kind of uphold an image or we want to look good. Like, I, I do this all the time. I value what other people think of me, so I, I maybe put on a, something that they might want to see or I lie. And now if you were to ask me, Daniel, do you believe the gospel? I would say, yeah, I totally believe it. I'm committed to it. Like, I think the gospel is the best news. I mean, I've, I've given up everything for the gospel. Like, I don't think there's anything better than the gospel. I, I want to study it. I want to preach it. I want people to know it. I think it's the best news that brings life and hope. Like, yeah, I totally believe the gospel. But I would say, do you always believe the gospel? I would say, no. Does that make sense? So I believe, and yet I don't believe. I, I think that I always remember it, but in many ways I forget. A Christian, I think, is therefore someone who says, I understand the gospel, yet I don't. And I'm still seeking to understand it. One pastor said it like this, One of the signs that you may not grasp the unique, radical nature of the gospel is that you are certain that you do. Does that make sense? Christian is someone who says, yes, I believe the gospel, but Father, help my unbelief. Practically, we seek to consider the great things God has done for us. We fight this forgetfulness in doing things like we're doing today. We're gathering, we're hearing the gospel proclaimed, we're singing the gospel, we're going to remember the gospel through the Lord's Supper, which I just realized I did not set out. So thank you, Megan. Uh, the juice is in the fridge here. I'm sorry, guys. We meditate on the... It's going to be extra fresh today. Uh, we hear the gospel preached and we experience those realities. Another way that we can do this individually is seeking to meditate on the promises of the gospel. We want to give ourselves to God's word and to prayer. A great way to, to fight forgetfulness and, and seek to consider all the great things that God has done for us is through scripture memorization. If this is not a regular practice of your life, I'd, I'd highly encourage you to consider that. Consider memorizing scripture to to bring those kind of truths, you're seeking to put that at the front of your mind kind of throughout your day. Another way we consider the gospel and fight forgetfulness is by sharing it. We seek to share it verbally with others, and it makes us process the gospel in a way that might show, I don't think I get it like I think I do. Have you ever done this? You try to tell someone how to do something, and you realize, I don't know if I know how to do this. <laughs> right? Seek to understand it in a way that we can communicate it in a way that others can understand. I think as we do this, as we seek to fight our forgetfulness, we seek to consider the great things that God has done for us, it leads to action and, and obedience. It leads to a thankfulness and a joy in response to experiencing the goodness of the gospel, and it leads us to want to obey. Right? Because in this passage, we see this reality. God reminds them of his great power. He instills fear in them. And yet he says in verse 20, do not be afraid. And this might seemingly seem like a contradiction, but Samuel's getting at the reality that there is a kind of fear, a holy fear, a high reverence that we must feel towards God that is due to him and his, his hallowed name, his awesome name. But it is not a fear that leads to paralyzing anxiety. It's not a fear that, that leads to being crushed and breaks us and paralyzes us. It is a fear that leads us to worship and obey. It is a fear that 
that responds in grateful worship and committed devotion and, and hope. So as we consider, we want to conform. Consider the great things that God has done for us and we conform. We want to seek to live our lives in harmony with what God has for us, with, in a line with his word. Our, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, our desires, our hobbies, our, everything about who we are, we seek to line that up with God and his word and, and his will to be a reflection of him for the glory of, of God and for our joy and the joy of others. Because friends, the, the scriptures are clear that, that God's people are people who want to obey him. Jesus' brother James said it like this, faith without works is dead. And this is not because works and obedience is the reason that we're made right. It's not because, right, that, that God's committed to us because we're so great and morally superior. It's all by his grace and, and for his glory. But as we experience his goodness and his grace, it's like, just like thunder follows lightning, works follow faith. So the reformer said it like this, we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, but this faith never remains alone. Because as we consider and, and think and experience the gospel, it, it, we're led to worship and to obey. So friends, let's not, for, let's not forsake God and forget him. Know that God will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Take comfort and trust in God's ultimate, unshaking determination to make a people for himself for his glory. And may we live in conformity and alignment with this reality. May God give us grace to fight this forgetfulness, to consider what great things God has done, and may we conform everything in our life to his will. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you are good, and your mercies endure forever. Father, thank you that it's not about us. Forgive us for our pride in thinking that we are greater and superior to others. Father, humble us. Father, this reality, I think, does that. Help us to come to grips with this. Make it make us a people of humility and thankfulness. Make it make us a people of hope and comfort that we trust even in the midst of our sin and we feel like we deserve to be forsaken and cast off and, and no one cares about us, that we deserve to be left alone and, and who could, how could anyone love us? Father, it's not about us and your love and your grace is not determined by our goodness. Father, thank you for the scandalous and, and outrageous claim that you love us regardless of, of what we've done and that you are making us a people for yourself, that you have sent your spirit to make us new creations and cause us to be born again. You are giving us new desires, that you've given us a new family and, and a body of people to learn how to do this together. Father, help us fight forgetfulness by being people who are committed to gathering, to the word, to uh, the disciplines, meditation and memorization, the disciplines of sharing our faith regularly, and Father, help us to conform our lives with your glory. We want to be representatives of you. We want people to know what Jesus is like, to know the sweetness of the gospel because of the way that we live and the way we communicate and the way we the posture ourselves, our humility, our joy, our peace, our patience, our desire to, to put others' needs above ours. So Father, would you give us grace and help us to do this?
We want, to, we want to please you. We want to obey you. So, Father, I love you. I thank you for your great grace and your commitment to my own sanctification and, and your glory and for the people that you have brought around me that love me enough to call me to the truth. And Father, we trust that you have done great things for us. And may we now seek to center our thoughts and our lives on the gospel and seek to apply it to all of life. In your son's name I pray. Amen.